1: Coming up on The Payoff, I had the opportunity to share my story recently on a podcast called The Great Man Within. This episode was called Rethinking Alcohol, Part 1, and it was basically an opportunity for me to weigh in on my experience, strength, and hope. Every time I tell my story, uh, it feels a little different because really, it's kind of the only thing I know, right? Uh, I know very well my story about getting sobriety, and I love being able to share it with people when I'm asked. So this is a pretty cool pod. Before you hear me blab on about how I got this whole thing, you know what's up. My main man, Kevin Souza.
0: Hey, this is Dominic, and this is your home for the cutting edge conversations on optimizing your personal performance, lighting up your sex life, and living a purpose-driven
2: life of your own design. These are the topics that Dominic and I have both struggled with in our own lives and still don't always get right. This is Brian. Welcome to The Great Man Podcast.
0: Hey, this is the first episode of a three-part series on rethinking alcohol. In 2021, one of our most downloaded episodes was, Is Alcohol Keeping You From Your Great Man? featuring Steve Wilt, one of the beloved brothers, the great man within community. And what we found was a vibrant discussion among our community members around, man, maybe I need to rethink my alcohol behaviors and patterns, is it still serving me in the way that I want it to in pursuit of my great man? So these three episodes, starting with the episode today with Pete Sousa, are gonna be covering the topics of, today is alcohol abuse and addictive behaviors, and looking at the extreme side Of when alcohol can really railroad your life. The second episode, we're going to be talking about what does life look like after alcohol? I've been personally alcohol-free for six years and a lot of people are afraid of living a boring social life if you give up alcohol. And I'm going to give you an honest discussion around how my social life changed, some of the friction I experienced, and now how my life and social life are thriving more than ever before in the alcohol-free world. And then the third episode is going to be an interview with James Swanick, a friend of mine and the founder of Project 90, which is a paid program that helps people who are non-addicts who want to give up alcohol in a 90-day group community program. So today's the first episode of our three-part series is featuring Pete Sousa, looking at the addictive nature of alcohol and what happens in an extreme addiction life. (laughs) Our guest today is Pete Sousa, TV news anchor for KWTX Waco, Texas, play-by-play for ESPN. And he's the host of the Payoff with Pete podcast, which is a really cool show where Pete interviews former athletes, celebrities, and other high-profile recovered alcoholics who talk about going through their dark times and with an emphasis on the good life on the other side of sobriety. A few of the people Pete has interviewed include Lee Steinberg, perhaps the most notable sports agent in history. And Tom Cruise's character in Jerry Maguire was supposedly based on Lee's life. And Steinberg recently negotiated Patrick Mahomes' groundbreaking half-billion-dollar deal. Pete also interviewed Ryan Leaf, the notorious NFL quarterback who, coming out of college, was considered neck-and-neck with Peyton Manning, who was going to be drafted first. Peyton Manning ended up going first. Ryan Leaf was drafted number two overall behind Peyton only to be out of the league in three years and owns the not-so-glamorous distinction of being the biggest NFL draft bust of all time. And so Pete has had the opportunity to interview some really big-time people on the show. And as you might imagine, someone running a podcast on alcohol recovery might have some experience with it himself. Pete will tell you that alcoholism doesn't quite run in his family, it gallops. And he had so many false starts when it came to his recovery that he could host a poker match with all the one-day sobriety chips he accumulated from AA. He always knew that he had two choices, get sober or die. And the stakes don't get any higher than that. So on November 7th, which happens to be my birthday, and I'll always remember this. So November 7th of 2011, something finally clicked for Pete. That was the day that he found a sobriety, which he's maintained for over a decade now. And today, Pete's here to share the lessons he's learned from about 100 interviews of recovery on his show and, of course, from walking that path himself. Please welcome Pete Sousa.
1: Wow. I'm humbled. That was pretty awesome.
0: Well, I had to do it, man, because, you know, fraternity brothers, right? <laughs> we we got a little connection for life. Why don't you, why don't you share that story? I, did, I left that out of the intro.
1: I, I am about two years older than Dominic, but when I was a junior in college, yeah, sophomore, junior, I, I got this... Uh, me and a couple of guys I was friends with, we decided we were going to pledge a fraternity because we had a lot of close friends in this fraternity, a uh, Lamba And Dominic was part uh, two years younger. He was part of the normal group of freshmen that were going to enter or fraternity, but we were juniors. And that experience, we talked a little bit about that before we popped on here. I'm better off for having it for sure.
0: Yeah, we're better off for having it. And also there were some moments that probably could kick off, you know, the the conversation that we're having here today about alcohol. And, you know, in listening to your show, Pete, you know, you talk about alcohol was something that, and substance abuse was something that took hold, you know, early in high school and then into college and some of the rituals that we went through, and we're going to keep a lot of those sacred, but one that's not so sacred is the pledges get put in a basement with a keg and the keg gets turned on. And the keg is not allowed to be turned off until it is emptied. And so all of the pledges, including us, you know, like we were we, we had a cup. And it was our job to make sure that we were drinking as rapidly as we could. And and it was actually that event next year when we administered that for the next class of freshmen, that we got caught by the university doing something like that. And they classified that as hazing, which it is. And we got kicked off campus and that's kind of where our paths diverge because you you were a few years older and your buddies, you, you went back to hanging out with your buddies. I went yeah. and hung out with... Yeah.
1: So, uh, in the room where the keg didn't stop. Yeah, unfortunately. Unfortunately, because I always say all that dark stuff uh, has brought me to where I am today. It's a very interesting uh, journey, but you look back and it, and it all starts to make sense. And I'm still, you know, I, I think and that's kind of, you know, the project, right? The great man within project is something that I am into because it's a project, you know?
0: Absolutely, man. I'll ask one more question here before I'll let Brian jump in here too, is, you know, set the stage for us, Pete. You have this podcast where you're, you're interviewing some really compelling people whose stories of sobriety are inspiring many. We definitely want to unpack some of the themes that you've heard from, you know, having that bird's eye view. But why don't we start off with your own particular origin story around what led you to down the path of addiction? And when did the the tables finally turn for you? Why did they turn for you on November 7th, 2011?
1: You know, I'm sure like anybody that will qualify, anybody who's a drug addict or an alcoholic, at the risk of spending all day on that, I'll, I'll say that it was in my family, like you mentioned, all throughout my dad's side. It was also like a terribly kept secret. It wasn't something that you would talk about, really. It wasn't kosher. To talk about all the issues that were going on on my father's side. You know, his dad was was a happy-go-lucky guy, but abusive. That's the household that my dad grew up in. My dad did the best he could raising us. He actually did a kick-ass job when you consider the hand he was dealt, but he was a, an alcoholic. You know, you would call him a functional alcoholic. I heard somebody say, Well, really, what's a functional alcoholic? If, if, if you're an alcoholic, you don't have any relationships really. Uh, so your life really isn't functioning. That's the environment that I was raised in with a functional alcoholic. First time I drank, you hear it, I got sick. I was in fifth grade.
0: Fifth grade. That was your first drink was in fifth grade. Wow. Fifth grade.
1: My brother Kevin was like, my parents went to 7-Eleven. He would have a party. He was kind of like the outlaw in high school. Uh, He was a real cool guy, you know. He had a big party one night and uh, I drank till I got sick. And I was in fifth or sixth grade for sure. Because I remember I had a JV basketball game the next day. And uh, I ended up, you know, I went there, I played. And then I didn't drink again until probably eighth or ninth grade. But the moment I started to drink in ninth grade, like it was my first spiritual experience. I had courage. I could talk to people. Right away, though, I was grandiose. You know, I was drinking and I was blowing up stories or stretching the truth. Uh, You know, I started to believe my own bullshit. I could do things before that I never thought I could do. It was literally like I thought I had discovered this superpower. You know, that superpower, like you'll hear from a lot of alcoholics or addicts, just at some point it turns on you. When it turns on you, man, it's ugly. I went to college. That's how I went to the University of Richmond. Guys like you were real bright. Guys like me played football. You know, that's that's how it worked out. And I went there on a scholarship. Going into my senior year or my freshman year at Richmond, this is a part of my story. It's like my first consequence. I was getting a physical to play in an all-star game in Philadelphia. And I had been taking a lot of drugs, a lot of prescription drugs that were not prescribed for me, but from other people, a lot of speed. I've been working out too a lot and drinking a ton. It's my second semester of senior year in high school. And uh, you know, I was getting a physical for this all-star game and the doctor was like, Hey, uh, your heart is beating, beating funny. If we're going to let you play in this game, you got to see a cardiologist. And I went to see a cardiologist. And you know, you do the stress test, the echocardiogram and they discovered right there like you have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy you're probably never going to play football again and the first consequence guys was when they they say okay well you could have gotten this through abuse of alcohol and possibly drugs or it could be a virus that went through your body your body was so used to fighting the virus that when the virus left your body attacks your your organs and i was like oh it had to be the virus you know but in my head i'm like fuck it's probably the alcohol even right then I was bargaining. I was like, well, there's no way I'm going to let anything get in the way of me and this substance because I love it. And it's so much fun. I was lucky, honestly. And this is something I I was talking to a friend of mine about Hillary Phelps, who was uh, on the podcast that I do recently. She was a swimmer at Richmond. There was a structure in in athletics that kind of kept me in the fairway for many years, if I if I were not to go to class, well, I would get in trouble with our coaches because they kept me on scholarship. I didn't play, but they kept me on scholarship and I contributed to the team. But uh, I was able to, to still be a part of things and that structure really helped me. The moment I left college, um, I was in free fall. I started to do a lot of hard drugs, took a lot of speed. I thought that was great. When I got out, you and I were of the same era. Brian, I think you too, you know, there's ecstasy was a huge thing taking that stuff like Tic Tacs out of school. I moved to New York was working with a friend of mine and I discovered partying up there and I was dedicated to that. And once I discovered cocaine, it was, I was like, that was something. The first time I did that, it was like, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life every day. But that, so that was my story. And then to move it along a little, I got a DUI. I had a great job Lived in New York. I had a great woman at the time, like who I was dating. And then, um, You know, I just blew all that stuff up and I ended up, you know, moving to Boston, moving back to New York with work. And then I just lost that job. It just dissolved. I I kind of like left and they were like, we're good with you. I wanted to be a bartender in New York. So I was the worst bartender ever. So I kind of bottomed out. I go back home to Philly. My parents were always there for me. I live with them and I got my first DUI um, or my second, actually, and I'm only like 25 or 26 and I'm like, okay, I'm going to stop drinking. And I went to, uh, you know, I'm not going to talk about it all day, but the shit has worked for me. Um, You know, Alcoholics Anonymous, 12-step recovery. I went to meetings for like three months. I went to meetings for a year, actually. But three months in, I started to smoke weed because I just, whatever. My story, I wasn't ready, you know. And then before I knew it, I got a job in Colorado working for USA Basketball. And the moment the plane touched down, I was drinking again. Then I got a job working in the NBA for the – Charlotte Hornets, and uh, I got there, and I started the cocaine use really started again, and then yeah, I, I got a job in Philly with the Sixers. Same thing. I mean, it got out of control.
0: Pete, it sounds like it, like there was actually kind of a an elongated period of time where you were messing up, and you kept getting second chances. So you know, you were talking earlier about being a high functioning alcoholic, but it doesn't sound like you were functioning very high for a while, and it still kind of continues. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, it's a great point. I was not a high performer. Um, I was just an offer, if that. And you couple that with somebody who has a raging alcohol and drug problem. It's not the employee that you want. I mean, whether I was going to be your your boyfriend or your employee or uh, you were going to invite me to your summer house, I, w- I could usually keep my shit together for the first, like, three months, maybe six. But sooner or later, the junkie, the alcoholic was going to show up and, it you know, steal your shit, help you look for it type of stuff eventually. That's how the disease progressed for me. I You know, I call it a disease because I truly believe it is and the American Medical Association calls it a disease too. When I was able, if anybody's listening to this and you don't know, whatever, the moment I was able to grasp and accept that concept that this was like I had cancer, right? Yeah, I get it. Like it's going to kill me and there's a treatment I can do and it's recovery and let's get started on the healing. It just got worse. You know, I finally, dude, like I was out of moves. I mean, basically, I mean, I basically went through two careers and uh, again, back home in my early thirties and uh, I was just bottoming out free fall. And I remember coming to my parents and being like, you know, there have been like a couple interventions. It's funny. God, I haven't talked about this stuff in a while. It's nuts. But, you know, I'm that guy. And uh, I remember I always say my brother, Michael, uh, was having problems with his stepson at that point, Cade. And Mike sat me down with my parents. I mean, there was really nobody even left to have the intervention. At that point, I just kind of, your world becomes this big and I'm holding up my pinky finger. He said, uh, I don't want you around my kids. And I remember thinking like, he doesn't even fucking like Cade. And he's like, you don't even want me around him? I'm thinking like, wow, this is bad. And it's like those little things sometimes that that hit you. I asked a guy to be my temporary sponsor in the rooms, uh, the 12-step deal. One night he was like, okay, I'll pick you up. We'll go to a meeting. And he picked me up and he took me to dinner. And I was like, fuck, this guy took me to dinner, okay? And I'm like, I've been drinking, I've been high. I'm totally not ready to get sober. And he tells me his story. And his story includes going to rehab. And he's like, Hey man, I went to rehab. He's like, I think you probably should do the same. And like the smallest window opened up like the last one. And I just, I tell people I like fell through the other side. That was like that last God window, that spiritual window, my last chance. Cause I was dying, man. I mean, if I was going to keep living like that, I was dying. That's no way. To live. And then my whole life changed when I, I, I went to treatment. You mentioned it i was actually i got there uh november 6th but i was totally inebriated so that's why november 7th is is, uh is the first day
2: pete hell of a story man thanks for thanks for sharing it when dominic talks about his sex addict uh, addiction and i hear you talking about alcohol addiction i've heard people talk about food addiction i'm always curious about the payoff and you talked about the payoff in the very beginning in college where it felt like a superpower as you continued outside of college and the, became heavily involved in drugs, like I'm curious about the payoff that continued to be more than what was going on in your life. Like, cause you talked a lot about further into your addiction. You talked a lot about the negative consequences of it, but there had to be something There had to be something that like where the, the party scene, what you were doing felt great.
1: Yeah. I absolutely loved living in New York, going out, to bars and clubs, doing cocaine, taking speed, being up all night. I mean, I can remember having so much fun just looking at my watch and being like, I got six more hours. It's gonna be four o'clock. Like, yes. And I was lucky because I worked in sports. One of the companies I worked for is called SFX Sports. We represented athletes getting ready for the draft. We had like an all access pass. We would go out with these guys in New York City, you know, and 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 skip the line and shit. And and I'm a nobody. But I'm just with these guys, and I'm, I, and that was another thing that fed into my ego. I really thought that I was something special from the moment I got out of college. And I, honestly, I was just fucking lucky. I caught a couple breaks, a couple people, you know, liked hanging out with be enough where I just like fell ass backwards into this world of access. And uh, it didn't last terribly long, but holy shit, was it fun for like three or four years where, and even when I worked in the NBA, same type deal. You travel with teams on private planes, you know, to the game. When I do PR, you're an extension of the team and the front office and the coaches, uh, you know, like a liaison to the media. But at that point, you know, and I'm working in the NBA also, here's something too you should know, and Dominic can speak to this about the addiction component. At some point when you accept that you're an alcoholic or a drug addict and you seek treatment for it, and then Dominic talked about those false starts, you go back out into the world with, uh, you know, a head full of recovery and a belly full of alcohol, you're in trouble. You're you're not going to have a lot of fun. I was on a meeting the other night, a Zoom meeting, twelve-step meeting, and a guy said his last relapse was literally like he just wanted to see if he had one more good night in him, and he didn't. he was done having fun with this shit. So, and that's what I, when you talk about when it starts to turn on you because your relationships really start to deteriorate. you start to deteriorate, and you know your whole life is is broken at that point.
0: and Brian, you know to answer your question from the payoff perspective from from my own history and sex addiction, when I first started my discovery, you know you, you drinking alcohol and you, Pete and you saying that like you felt you had this courage and the superpower, for me, it was like, oh my God, my body has this superpower to produce these amazing feelings. And at first, it felt like this is amazing. But then I I recognized that it had a practical application, which was anytime I felt anxious, stressed out, bored, lonely, insecure, like that became the scratch to my itch. Yeah, you know, it it numbed all that out. It put all that stuff away, and and then it became a thing that I I just needed to do in order to fall asleep, or needed to do before I went to school. You know, to to relieve the anxiety. And so it quickly turns from something glorious into something kind of like, I guess the average person can relate to if you're a coffee drinker, take someone's coffee away and they're just miserable. Like they need it to actually just like function on a day-to-day basis. And when they don't have it, they're cranky, they're irritable, they're angry, their mind's not working. So it becomes less of a uplift and it becomes much more of a dependency. Yeah. In the interviewing of your hundred guests or so, did you hear that to be kind of a theme around like that kind of the turning point where it turns from something that was once fun into something that's now I need it to even just function in life and then it becomes destructive?
1: Oh, a hundred percent. And you mentioned, you know, your history with the, with the sex addiction and I was just reading about you. I mean, like that spanned what? how many years for you, like five or six or?
0: Well, my recovery was four years, but I mean, my behaviors
1: were 20
0: years in the making.
1: So that is like, that's a window into the absolute grind the whole thing is. I mean, it's just like, you know, at some point, like we were talking about, it turns on you. And then what do you start doing? You start hiding it from people. Mm-hmm. You start going through doors that you never thought you would go through. Yeah. Like now I'm drinking in the morning. Now I wake up with with such a terrible hangover that I know the only thing that will cure this is more of the same, whatever put me here. And then that cycle starts and that I'm never going to be drunk at work. Then you're drunk at work and you're not able to perform. And it's like, you hear that from everybody. You know, one thing I thought that I might hear talking to other athletes, but I wasn't sure that I was going to hear, but I heard with such consistency was guys playing high and drunk.
0: Wow. Professionals?
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. Tony Mandridge, the guy who was, he was drafted second by the pack. You know, a lot of people, look at Tony and say, oh, this guy did a shitload of steroids and when he got into the pros, he stopped. That's why he didn't turn out to be, a, a, you know, the player people thought he was going to be. You know, really what it was, was he developed an incredible dependency on opiates. And I mean, he talks about shooting himself up at halftime of a game uh, in the NFL, playing the Arizona Cardinals on the road. And he's like thinking to himself, like I'll be, I'll be able to play better in the second half, shooting opioids. He's not like, he's not taking speed. He's not, like, this is like, you're not going to be any better, I would imagine, on this stuff. Uh, not a performance enhancer. and uh, But he needed to take it. And he thought, in his mind, it'll help him play better. And I remember I asked him, I was like, did you play any better in the second half? He's like, fuck no. You know? <laughs> yeah. But Vance Johnson, the guy who was a wide receiver for the Broncos, played in like three Super Bowls, exceptional receiver in the NFL, taking all kinds of drugs before games, the night before. He Vance said he didn't even sober up till the second half. Wow.
0: And Pete, what you're saying here, I I wanted to double click on like these lines in the sand that we draw and say, I will never, right. I will never be drunk at work. And then you step over that line and then you create another line that you say, I will never. And then you end up doing that. And, you know, for me, it was like, I'll never cheat on a girlfriend. I'll never do that. And then I ended up doing that. And I'm like, well, I'll never do that again. And then it happened again, you know, and it's like. Brian, you asked me this. So I think I was our second or third episode of this podcast way back when we first started. And Brian was interviewing me about the making of a sex addict. How does one become a sex addict? And what I said was that line where like you have no control anymore over putting a line and then maintaining that line. That's when you know that you've got a problem. And it sounds like you found yourself there. All the the people that you've interviewed are doing these unthinkable things. Like most people couldn't imagine a professional athlete shooting themselves up with opiates at halftime or, you know, not sobering up till the second half of a game, but teammates are all around them. Coaches are all around them. They're getting away with it.
1: Yeah. We had this one guy, Chris Terrian, he played forever in the NHL that he had become so dependent on alcohol. He, it was an afternoon game, and he was playing like shit. And, and in between periods, he takes his skates off, goes out to his car, drinks vodka, comes back in, plays an incredible third period, and they win. And the next day, his coach grabs him and is like, hey, like, he, he was like, fuck, the jig is up. They're going to know that I was drinking. And his coach was like, you played incredible. I need that guy on the ice all three periods. Wow! And that also is the mind fuck that is addiction. You know, every every once in a while, the ball is going to bounce your way. We'll get back to this conversation in a second, but right now, a word from our sponsors. Right when you're drunk or you're high, and. That's all I needed to be like, oh, yeah, see, that makes me better. I need that.
0: Pete, I can so relate to this, man. This, this is a silly story comparing like I was in a softball league about 10 years ago and softball compared to like professional sports. An
2: elite, but, an elite <laughs> athlete, ladies and gentlemen. I,
1: I, yes. We
0: were, I, was, I was an elite softball player. This team, <laughs> We did win the championship this season I'm talking about, but that's not here, uh, neither here nor yeah. there. But, but I remember it was a day where during that day, I stayed at home from work. I quote, worked from home, barely got any work done. I was sexting women all day long. I must have jerked off like four or five times. I was like drained, you know, like I was just, I had no juice, no energy. And then I went and played a softball game that night and I went like four for four, crushed like two home runs. I caught a ball over my shoulder, threw two guys out, like one at the third base and one at home. And I'm like, oh okay, so this has no consequences. That was like the best softball game I played in the seven years I was on the team. I'm like, oh, so this stuff doesn't have any consequences. And it's those moments that really fuck with you where you're like, oh, well, I guess I, I can handle this. This is not really an issue. And then you just go trudging along doing more of the same shit.
1: Dude, a thousand percent. I want to ask you one question, a follow up for you. Did you have any kind of like speed or meth connected to your, your sex addiction? Because I know that fed my, my sex drive for sure
0: so when it came to substances I, I never had in a my drug of choice was was just the sex addiction so there was never any other substances
1: yeah
2: very very high testosterone levels that was that was all dominic had to go on this <laughs> true little... we've
0: we've tested and then said like i have these weirdly high testosterone levels which sounds great and you know all the commercials are like you need high testosterone it fucked up my
2: uh hormonal system so yeah you can
1: you can take some <laughs> wow that's interesting
2: yeah, you know, B, I'm curious about something. When Dominic talks about a sex addiction, there's parts that are really relatable. And when you talked about being an alcoholic, there's parts that are really relatable. Talking about the payoff of having a superpower, for me in college, that's when I started to have sex. And it was always after drinking, right? There was no, yeah. there was no time with a woman for the first time where I was sober. That lasted into my 30s. I would love to turn the page here on we've experienced what you're going through. You hit that point where you fell through the window and now you're on the road to recovery. And something I'm curious about, I've never considered myself an alcoholic, but I have seen the detriments to my life of not drinking alcohol anymore. I very rarely drink alcohol anymore. And I miss some of those social opportunities with people. It seems to be a level playing field that, yeah, let's go grab a drink something that everybody can do. Not everybody can go or wants to go play basketball. Not everybody wants to go, you know, to a poetry slam. Like it just (laughs) seems like a universal sort of thing. So I'm curious about your recovery and the payoffs that fill the holes that the addiction gave you.
1: Wow. I mean, that is, that is a great question because that was a huge fear of mine. I mean, you mentioned the interaction with the opposite sex for me. I, I, I was, ridiculously reliant on alcohol and then ultimately drugs to even have the courage to talk to women, which, uh, you know, I consider to be attractive. I had one girlfriend when I was living in Philadelphia, she to me was, was so beautiful and so cool. You know, that I felt like I, I was nowhere near on the level of being with someone like that. So I was constantly drinking and taking speed. So I felt like I was on that level. That happened a lot. You know, i I felt like I was um, never good enough to be with the women I was with. And it's an inside job that's total bullshit. But that's what I was telling myself. I mean, at the time, I, I wasn't good enough because I was such a, a, a drunk and an addict. But when you put in the work, when I got sober, I went to a rehab. After that, I lived in a recovery house, like a halfway house. When I was in the halfway house, I worked at Kentucky Fried Chicken. I mean, I, and this is after I worked in the NBA for years. What
0: was that like, Pete? Talk about that for a minute you know, you're in your thirties now and you're working at Kentucky fried chicken. What did that feel like for you?
1: Look, it was parts of it were hilarious. Parts of it too. I took very seriously because I was taking sobriety so serious. And honestly, I didn't know how to to work or function. And this is kind of brings me back to my point. Like I didn't know how to like operate a, a regular job. Like I had been playing football and I worked for like, you know, I used to mow lawns and, uh, you know, I'm just not the most skilled technician at anything. So I mean, like they were like, "Hey, work the register." I was like, "Holy shit!" Uh, it was like flying an F five for me. Like, <laughs> <give> you- <laughs> and I had these feelings of fight or flight. Like literally, I would be in line; it'd be really long. I'm like, "I gotta go to the bathroom." They're like, "Dude, there's fucking thirty people here." <laughs> like, and so I learned how to manage a situation. How if you hang in there and you learn something, you will actually be good at it. So by the time, if you want to put like a, you can almost put it like in a microscopic situation, I progressed over that like five month period of working at KFC to by the end, I was fucking around. You know, I always have the story that this guy came up to the drive-thru and he's being such a prick and he was like, where is everybody back there? What's going on? You know, I had the headset on and the hat and and I'm like, I'm sorry, sir. One of the chickens is loose in the back. (laughs) (laughs) The guy's like, what, you got chickens back there? I'm like, no, if you <laughs> relax, we'll get you your three-piece, you know? Uh, so therein, and that goes back to the thing with dating. And all of this confidence I got, all of this, the ability to hang in there and kind of get back up to speed as far as life was concerned, was esteem building. And now I had this confidence that I never had had. I never really grew up because there was an arrested development. I was putting substance on every single emotion or learning experience, basically, that i ever had, or life experience, and now I'm, okay, I'm confident, and so then with the female, too, the first time, I remember the first time I kissed a girl when I was sober, I was like, I'm going to kiss you now, you know, was, it wasn't exactly, I was like Pepe Le Pew, probably,
2: or like, <laughs> Pete, that's so powerful, though, that, you know, we go through these experiences when we're on substances, and we don't actually have to experience them, we don't actually learn from them. And so the addiction becomes very real because if you want that feeling again, you have to be on it in order to get it. So it sounds like whether it's KFC or kissing a woman for the first time when you're sober, it's kind of like being a kid again, like trying to build up all that confidence without the substance. These are incredibly important moments that we're talking about right now. and And I don't want them to be glossed
0: over because you were talking about the line of 16 people or 30 people at KFC, which originally would cause you to bail out. You learned how to hang in. The moment with the woman who you'd never kissed sober before, you would have needed alcohol in the past, but then this time, you know, you fumbled around, I'm going to kiss you now and you dive in and maybe it wasn't the sexiest kiss ever, but you did it. These are those moments. And Bri, when you talk about relatability, right, you know, the majority of the people who are going to be listening to this podcast aren't going to be alcoholics, but they can certainly relate to needing crutches for the things that like jack them up emotionally in life, whether it's around money or being in a boardroom, or romance, and like what you're hearing here is Pete, you, like you really humbled yourself, you know, working at KFC, like giving where you had been can be a humbling experience, telling a woman, I'm going to come kiss you now, and like, like these are humbling moments, but now look at you, you're an anchor on a, on a news show, you're doing play-by-play for ESPN, and.
1: So last week, I get a phone call or an email two weeks ago, hey, this is uh, ESPN, like you know, out of, out of Bristol. Because you do a lot of ESPN regional stuff or ESPN Plus, but this is like the big network. They're like, hey, can you do these play-by-play games next week for the University of Texas? You know, I'm like, shit, yeah. I was nervous. I mean, I was super prepared because that's what I do when I get nervous. Otherwise, I'm just going to sit around and get nervous. Anyways, the game, I mean, I know how to call a game, but I needed the information on the guys or whatever. But I, I have this pin I wore at KFC, and I still have it. And I put it right next to, you know, the mic box that I was using. And, and once in a while I would look down at it because not everything, go, you, you call a three and a half hour game with the producer in your ear and the director talking. Sometimes you got your color analyst here, all this action going on, uh, you know, tons of shit. And uh, honestly, I wouldn't have those fight or flight feelings, but I would have feelings of awkwardness or whatever. And that was a good thing to kind of ground me to look at that name tag and be like, you yeah, know, you're good. You got this, like, it's not all that big a deal. And uh, it, it works, you know, I still to the, to this day, lean on those experiences, sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly, that that experience, those humbling experiences are really for me, what, what made, made me the man I am today. Cause it was hard and, you know, doing hard things is what makes it, I don't like doing hard things. You ask me to do something tough and I'm, I'll be like, oh, can we, can we make it like a month away? <laughs> like that job yeah, for future Pete. You know, future Pete ultimately has to do that at some point, you know, but I'll do it. Uh, I don't like hard stuff, but if I commit to it and I end up just walking through it, I get out on the other side, usually with some some self-esteem, some more.
2: Pete, one of the questions that when I was working in the sexual health space, I would get often from parents is how do I talk to my kids about sex? It's a hard topic. I'm uncomfortable with it. I don't really want to do it, but I think I should. I never got that talk related to alcohol. It was just it was just kinda like, eh, don't drink. It's not a thing. My, my parents didn't drink and, and we just kinda didn't talk about it. I'm curious what you would tell, you know, either your kid or, or the advice you would give a parent for for their kid when it comes to alcohol and substances.
1: First thing I'll say is I'm not an expert. You know, there are people who who can answer this more eloquently and probably a little more research based. Uh, I will tell you that my brother Michael is sober and he's a guy that I admire a great deal. And he has incredible relationships with his children that never seen him drunk, but they know that he has this, you know, for an alcoholic talking to their child. I think it's very important that at the right time, when they reach the right age, uh, that you let them know, hey, we've got this in our family. I have this. There's a reaction to this stuff that is abnormal that I have for you to keep an eye on this uh, is something you're going to want to do. I have seeing guys that are sober today, alcoholics, have really great relationships with their kids. There's an education there and an open dialogue that I think, whether it's sex or whether it's alcohol, you know, I grew up in a family where we didn't really talk about sex. We didn't talk about getting fucked up until it was all too late. You know, I think that it's, it behooves a family to just have that open dialogue to kind of take away that stigma um, hey, look, if you have this reaction, you might have this, and it's okay because I do too, and we can talk about it. Look, if somebody's gonna be a raging lunatic, alcoholic, or drug addict, unfortunately, a lot of times that's just the hand they drew, and they've got to manage it somehow. And it, it happens. Even today, when I have a situation that I'm not sure about getting into, you could find somebody that went through the same exact situation and said, I did it. Don't do it. This is what'll happen. I'm like, yeah, I think I'll figure it out myself. And then it's you know you go you go run into a buzz saw, but so the only way I can really answer that is from the perspective of somebody who has a drinking problem. Uh, as observing my brother, he has done a miraculous job of raising his kids. One who's now about to graduate college, but again his he's done his job. She's going off to college, but I think the one thing that I've seen even in my friends who aren't alcoholic and who don't have the tendency is the open dialogue. This is real, you know, especially now, dude. You guys both know the stakes are way too high. You, you know, if you're a kid who has 12 beers and you're at college for the first time, and 12 beers is a lot, right? But you're you're out you're partying for the first time. You know, my first line of coke, there was no risk that it was going to be a line of fentanyl, and I was going to die. Right. I mean, honestly, I don't know how to play that. Like, how, how to educate kids on that. I mean, is fear a motivator? I, I don't know. I know that the communication is just so important, and I and I have seen people are more aware of the power of those drugs now i mean because before the fentanyl it was the opioids and you know when i got to rehab i mean and this is 2011 50 to 60 percent of the people in there young or old were there because of a uh, prescription drug opioid mainly addiction yeah. Yeah. you know so that's not i'm not breaking any news here but it's a different animal
0: it's interesting you say that cuz my version of that in Sex Addicts Anonymous was like 50% of the new men who would walk through the doors of Sex Addicts Anonymous were there for porn addiction and nothing else, you know. So it's yeah. it's interesting to see these corollaries and we started this interview talking about the fraternity that you and I were both in at the University of Richmond and I thought it could be cool to to wrap the conversation with drawing a parallel to the the fraternity that we are in now together which are, you know, recovering addicts. Yeah. And one of the things that most civilians, so Bri, just in case you didn't know, you're a civilian. and A civilian means that you, you, are not, you haven't been an addict, you haven't recovered from addiction. Most civilians don't really understand is that just like a fraternity, recovery requires an initiation. An initiation is something that requires something big of you. It requires you to surrender your will to a higher power, to a process that's smarter than you, that's been more effective than you have. There's a certain level of humility that you have to surrender to as well. And then you get broken down. You willingly accept to be broken down completely at your core so that you can reassemble yourself from an intentional place and come back out the other side. That's why, Pete, when I, when I haven't spoken to you in 20 years, I automatically know that we're going to have a kinship because you've been through it, your own version of that. And I imagine that you feel a similar kinship to all the people that you interview on the Payoff with Pete podcast, right? Because there's something to be said for someone who's gone through that ordeal, that initiation. And we talk all the time on this podcast that rites of passage for men don't exist in our Western world. Boys just kind of morph into men and we have a lot of little boys growing, running around in men's bodies. But people who have been through addiction recovery have a flavor of what an initiation into adulthood, uh, a certain kind of adulthood and a depth of that really feels like. So I just wonder what your perspective is on, on that.
1: Well, you're spot on in a sense where you mentioned a fraternity and you mentioned the initiation into that fraternity. And I, I tell people, just from an athletic perspective it's the best locker room i've ever been in in my yeah. life all kinds of different people all kinds of different walks of life and uh you know we got people identifying all kinds of ways it doesn't matter dude we're all alcoholic or we're all addicts and we're we're here to recover and to help each other recover i mean there's literature you know my sole purpose is to stay sober and to help another alcoholic to achieve sobriety So whoever walks through those doors and wants it, I'm there to show them the way or try to show them the way to share my experience. And that bond that we have is, uh, you know, it's, I remember asking somebody once just when I was living in a recovery house, like, what's the deal? Why do we have 15, 20 people living in these fucking houses and I'm I'm with kids who aren't like me. And, and this woman, uh, Karen Phillips, I think her name is, I forget her name, but it was a long time ago. She was my the therapist. And she said, it's that tribal community, that tribal environment really creates that power like greater than you. And it can, man. I mean, it's a, it's a phenomenal thing to be a part of because it says also in the literature, we are like survivors of a shipwreck. And when you have another survivor that survived like a ship, shipwreck plane crash or whatever. I mean, you have this bond with them. It's like nothing ever before. On a much lower level, my news director now here in Texas, we work together in Monroe, Louisiana. God bless it. Not a place I want to go back to. So he and I have a bond. You know, we were at the same station in Monroe and I, and I love the guy. And it's, there's certain things like that that keep us together, you know, and, and sharing those experiences that you've had with people, whether it's at a former job or, Definitely like in alcoholism addiction or sex addiction, like it's, there is something about sitting in front of another addict and bearing your soul. That is, it's an out of this world experience when both are being vulnerable.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Pete, I want to thank you for sharing your story so courageously, you know, as much as I do that every time you tell your story, someone out there is hearing it and it's changing their life. I remember you sharing on your podcast, the interview with Lee Steinberg, which you, know, you have to listen to. You had said that Lee and his story when he was on HBO Sports speaking openly about his addiction hit you at like, you know, at the right moment where you were like, if Lee Steinberg yeah. right, can have this then and survive it, then I can. And now you're paying it forward, doing for others what he had done for you. Uh, So I just wanted to applaud you for that. And the podcast is a must listen. I'm going to link it at the top of the show notes. It's the payoff with Pete. I will link the Lee Steinberg interview because I think that's a great place to start. And then there's about a hundred other episodes, but Pete will give you the last word here, man.
1: Uh, Look, I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to tap into a whole nother, you know, group of people. You talk about the great man within. I think that we all have that We had that great man within us. Um, It's just a matter of finding it and letting that authentic light shine. You know, whether it's addiction to sex or drugs or whether it's just a a guy who's on his journey. We all have each other to connect with. So I would urge, you know, anybody, I'm not hard to find. I know you'll probably link the Instagram and stuff, but just message me if you've got any questions about alcohol. And it doesn't necessarily mean you, if your son or whatever I, I love to be able to, it's it's really a, a fire that burns in me, the recovery thing all the time. and keeps me going. So if you've got any questions about addiction, recovery, hit me up. I'd love to hear from you.
0: Hey, so one of the things we weren't able to get to in this episode is what did Pete's life look like after he went alcohol-free? And unfortunately, we ran out of time today. But do not fear, because the very next episode, Brian and I are going to be talking about What does life look like after going alcohol-free? At the beginning of this episode, I mentioned that I've been alcohol-free for about six years now. In the next episode, we're gonna be talking about what was that experience like transitioning from alcohol, the friction that I experienced, how my social environments changed, how my relationships changed, how my body changed, and how, for me, it was a decision that I made that I'm never gonna be going back on because I've seen the benefits of an alcohol-free life and it's a judgment-free conversation that we're going to be having because I support anyone's right to want to drink socially and intentionally. As long as you know what the role it is is playing in your life, and as long as it's not standing in the way of the things that you want, then have at it, enjoy. And so that next conversation that we're going to have in the very next episode of this three-part series is going to be looking at what does an alcohol-free life look like? Is it boring or can it be
1: thriving? Enjoy.